Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The White House executive order on artificial intelligence gathered into one place all the concerns and cautions floating around for years. How to protect privacy and training data. How to avoid algorithmic bias. For more on how agencies can improve their AI game, Tom Temin spoke with the founder of the FAIR Institute, Nick Sana. And you are into quantifying cybersecurity risks and kind of putting numbers around some of these things. Tell us your take on what came out from the White House. Is there anything new there? And what should happen next as a result? Yeah, actually, uh, we are quite surprised to see this coming so quickly. We had the privilege of having uh, Chris DeRusha, the federal government CISO, speak at the recent FAIR conference and tell us that it was upcoming. And I'm I'm personally very surprised by how quickly uh, the federal government has come out in in trying to provide guidance for the agencies in dealing with this problem. Usually you expect a lag from government on dealing with new trends. But as it comes for AI, they've been very, very proactive. And I think more proactive than probably many commercial companies. For once, we see the government leading in trying to provide guidance and make sense of it in ways that many private companies are still trying to figure out how to make sense of it. It read like a lot of great values that you want to bring to your AI activities, but it wasn't very prescriptive. And to enable, say, lack of bias in algorithms or protecting privacy with training data, whatever the case might be, a few other things, you have to do things. And so what should agencies, do you think, do differently now as they think about AI? I actually commend the White House for not being too prescriptive to begin with. And I think what they try to establish is some very common sense practices that apply to any form of risk, you know? And so say, if you want to manage this risk properly, they said we need to um, have somebody focus on it. And so they're basically asking the agency to designate chief AI officers who have the responsibility to advise, you know, leadership on AI, try to assess, you know, uh, the risk associated with AIs uh, and try to capitalize and benefit from it when it makes sense and manage this risk um, over time. So having somebody responsible for it, it's it's a great step. And in terms of governance, you know, if you don't have somebody responsible, you cannot ask for accountability and for this problem to be taken care of. The second thing is that they basically imply that treat this as like any form of risk. Identify how AI can be both a risk and an opportunity in terms of extending some of your services, increasing some productivity, both in terms of offering new services or improving your security practices, but also try to understand how the adversaries may use AI against you. And so identify those scenarios, try to size the problem and see what are the scenarios that matters in our agency and which may not be as applicable. And then what should we do about it? So I think that I love that because it points to a more risk-based approach than a set of prescriptive controls that may not apply to every agency. And so this forces the every agency to say, what are the issues in the AI that bubble up to the top that we need to tackle? And it may be slightly different from agency to agency. That idea of people using AI against you, it reminds me of, as a kid, the first time you saw two facing mirrors and poked your head in between. There were an infinite number of reflections going on, you know, till the mirror disappeared. And could that happen with AI that with say, nefarious actors using AI against the AI you have deployed, that they'll just simply get into a closed loop and cancel each other out altogether? Well, it could be. It's always a race, you know, to the top in terms of capability. Definitely, we see it on the adversarial side. The threat actors are using AI to 
and make it much easier to develop a slight variation of the latest ransomware attack to try to go undetected to penetrate your account and et cetera. And on the defensive side, we're trying to be uh, smart and trying to catch up. So it, it is a warfare there where you need to level up with the adversaries or you're going to suffer more damage in, in the short term. So I think that the fact that the government recognizing there's a bigger threat, they've probably seen an increase in adversaries using AI to uh, weaponize their tactics, to diversify their approaches, and the equivalent level of effort, if not greater, needs to happen on the defensive side. So we've seen this before with other forms of threat before. So again, I commend the government saying, okay, in terms of threats, let's treat it like other threats, like other risks we've seen in the past, and have an organized way of thinking about it versus trying to find technical silver bullets that may apply to one particular situation, but then don't solve the uh, problem. You know, Again, what that's saying is identify the issues that matter most so you can apply the resources where it matters most versus trying to delude ourselves in a bunch of technical remedies. We're speaking with Nick Sanna. He is founder of the FAIR Institute and president of Safe Security. And so really you have to think of AI on two fronts. One how do we deploy this in the best way possible for the best outcomes? But at the same time, you have to treat it as a cybersecurity threat on the incoming side. Absolutely. And so companies need to look at it in both ways. I think from the uh, internal use side, you know, AI can give a lot of agencies uh, a lot of help in scaling some of the practices and, and providing better service to the public and by being more responsive in providing you know, answers that are very common to certain can I say, demands of the public. But it allows them to also maybe engineers and agencies to check their code and, and be more proficient in QAing their code and testing things. It allows, again, many applications that can increase the productivity and offer new products and services. But again, there is what are the risks associated with those opportunities? Are we using public, can I say, uh, versions of you know large language models where you can compromise the data and, and make available to other people inadvertently? Should we look at internal versions of AI tools that we actually teach the tool on data that is actually secure and private? And so these are some of the considerations for internal use of AI. And on the adversarial side, yes, you need to increase your threat intelligence capabilities to understand in what ways you know the adversaries are using AI to, against you and act accordingly. What are the remedies that are most effective in, in blocking them? And so you need to look at it at both fronts, absolutely. It's both offensive and defensive. And on top of defensive, it's, there's a lot of business application that can be very useful um, in terms of stretching the dollars, the taxpayer dollars, and for the benefit of the greater good. And I'll ask you this because I've asked several other people this question. When you deploy a standard application and you have programmed logic into it, if you run that program 10 million times, you'll get the same outcome with the same inputs because that's how computers work. They're binary. But with AI and the constant learning process, then as it works over time, your system can get infected, let's say, with drift because of new data coming in. So therefore, the privacy issues, the bias issues, whatever, or just the outcomes you want can keep changing. And so is it incumbent on agencies to add something to their way they approach application maintenance, which is usually a matter of fixing bugs and adding new features, but maybe turning it off, retraining it with the original data, and then relaunching it from time to time, or some related technique like that? Yeah, Tom, I really love this question because in the past, cybersecurity has become a problem because cybersecurity came afterwards. The uh, the mandate for both agency, even commercial companies, was to go out to market fast with new applications, with new services. Fast and cheap was the name of the game. 
security came afterwards. And then, oops, like we have got a problem, we need to fix it. And then suddenly um, uh, we have to play catch up. And I think in the case of AI, we observe that and say, we cannot do this. We cannot go fast and get in trouble really quickly. We need to incorporate risk assessments, but in the design of the solution, in the assessment of the solution, in preemptive. And so we have the chance now, and I commend the government for doing this, to ask the agencies, especially uh, given this executive order, to put security in the equation alongside with uh, fast and cheap, not as an afterthought, ever more important. And AI makes that even more important than ever before. Right. So you should really avoid taking a comprehensive approach to trying to modernize everything and applying AI everywhere you can, but do it incrementally. Incremental, but alongside, I think, you know, what we're seeing is more and more, I used to say uh, DevOps um, was a big trend in uh, in the industry. You need to start thinking about DevSecOps, where as you develop new solution, as you onboard new solution, there must be a mandatory risk assessment done upfront before you launch. And so, uh, like in, in, in if I use an analogy in the industry, you know, when you come up with new buildings, you know, you now need to do an environmental assessment. Same thing here. We are entering in an era where it's no longer okay to uh, have cybersecurity as an afterthought. You need to look at it upfront. And uh, in the case of AI, there's so many implications you need to consider. You need to do the assessment upfront before you know uh, damage can be done. And the, the government's saying, ring the bell and saying, that's the nature of the problem. You know, issues will happen, can happen. You cannot pretend you didn't know. The government is telling you you should look at it um, proactively, and that's a very good thing. Nick Sana is founder of the Fair Institute and president of Safe Security. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com/federaldrive and hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can 
bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. 
and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.